Now, this month, 50 years ago, a new political party, the SDLP, was formed in Belfast, just one of a number of events in the summer of 1970 that reflected the impact of the troubles that had begun in the er, in the previous summer. Uh, now, the summer of 1970 was also marked by political convulsions in the Republic relating to the Irish government's handling of the Northern Crisis, while in the UK, a new British government also had to grapple with the implications of the strife in Northern Ireland. Well, joining me to look back at the political heat of that summer of 1970 is Jermot Ferriter, pr- Professor of Modern Irish History in UCD. And thank you for joining us this morning, morning Jermot. So understandably, we obviously heard an awful lot and talked an awful lot last week about the towering legacy of John Hume. Um, but you might tell us more today about Jerry Fitt. He, he was the SDLP leader for the first nine years of the party's existence. Yeah, Jerry Fitt led the party from 1970 to 1979 when John Hume took over. And John Hume would have been the deputy leader at the time of the establishment of the party in 1970. Um, but Jerry Fitt's own story was remarkable, you know. I mean, he could not have had a more difficult beginning in life. He was born in the infirmary of Belfast Workhouse um, in 1926. He was the son of Rose Martin, who was an unmarried servant and an unknown father. So he was not Jerry Fitt, he was Gerald Martin when he was born and then he was adopted by the Fitt family um, as an infant. So very, very difficult uh, upbringing. And of course, he was reared in the working class area um, in, in, in Belfast. He became very much associated with the, the docks region of Belfast and he had an intermittent uh, education and he did a variety uh, of, of labouring jobs and then became a merchant seaman. Uh, in 1942 and and would have been at sea at a fascinating time because the world was at war Uh, and then came back in the early 1950s and began to get involved in in Labour and Republican politics in Sailortown in that Docklands area that it was actually a constituency the Dock constituency uh, for the uh, Stormont Parliament Uh, and that's where he cut his political teeth so a working class background and um, he was very much a street fighter as he put it himself he was educated in the University of Life Um, And there's an awful lot of infighting uh, within the the Labour movement and Republican circles in the 1950s, no more than with the, you know, nationalism generally in Northern Ireland, you know, what direction they should take. And of course, with the outbreak of the Troubles and the beginning of the civil rights, um, you know, Jerry Fitt was very much uh, a centre focus because he was an MP at that stage. You know, he was actually sitting in Westminster and he was bringing up the issues in Westminster and he was battened and bloodied, of course, in 1968 in Derry as an MP, which caused quite a sensation at the time. Um, So the establishment of the party in 1970 is about trying to bring a lot of those different Republican and Labour and Nationalist groupings under a new umbrella. And that new umbrella is the SDLP. And Jerry Fitt insisted that Labour go into the title of the party because he wanted to ensure that there was a focus on the bread and butter issues. But he was not a remotely happy leader of the party. Really? Why not? Well, he resented an awful lot of those who were academically educated. Um, you know, in his own coarse way, the way he put it, um, I'm up to my arse in effing teachers, if you'd excuse the vulgarity. But that was really a dig at the likes of, of John Hume. You know, they had a lot of focus, Hume and, and people like Austin Curry and Ivan Cooper, uh, on drafting and redrafting policy documents. And Fit had no time for that. He had no time for constituency organisation or dealing with mail. Um, so, you know, he was from a very different milieu as he saw it. You know, even though some of those other founder members were from very modest backgrounds, you know, they had benefited from the Northern Ireland Education Act and had been university educated. So there are quite a lot of class tensions there. But there are also policy tensions. You know, where does the SDLP go uh, for a hearing? You know, who does it engage with? You know, what it's, what's its relationship going to be with Dublin uh, and with London? Um, and Fit is not a happy leader in that sense. It doesn't suit his style uh, of, of, of politics at all. 
Okay, so meanwhile then there's disarray in the ranks of the Irish government when it came to responding to what was happening in Northern Ireland. Why, why, was, why were they at such odds? Well, I mean, the, the Republic was not remotely prepared for the outbreak of the Troubles. You know, to get to the nub of the issue, they were floundering, you know, and then you had the eruption of the arms crisis. And without getting into all the details of that, I mean, there there were sensational allegations in the summer of 1970, in May 1970. There were two obviously very high profile um, dismissals from the cabinet, Charles Hawhey and Neil Blaney, um, alleging that they had been involved in some kind of plot to import arms illegally to assist the IRA. Uh, Jack Lynch survived a vote of confidence in his government. Uh, But the question was, was Jack Lynch trying to ride two horses? You know, Fianna Fáil's traditional aggressive anti-partition rhetoric. On the other hand, trying to calm things down because 1969 had obviously been a a torrid summer. And the way the Financial Times put it in May 1970, is the gun coming back into Irish politics? I mean, it was a very uh, dramatic summer 1970 in politics and the way Hibernia magazine put it at the time in relation to the arms trial um, the truth has been suppressed justice has not been done uh, and there was a, a, a sense that the truth has not in any sense come fully out um, and that was a good summary and of course many aspects of, of that crisis and its legacy have remained contested uh, to this very day uh, so they're battling with that all the time Fianna Fáil uh, as a government how do they formulate a coherent response to Northern Ireland and even when Patrick Hillary was appointed Minister for Foreign Affairs or External Affairs as it was then in 1969 he was given a tour of Ivy House the headquarters of the department um, and he asked an innocent question where is the Northern Ireland desk to which the response was there isn't a Northern Ireland desk and there's no Anglo-Irish unit within the Department until 1971. So they're grappling mm. uh, with the enormity of all that. And Hillary was even criticised for travelling north, was he, in the summer of 1970? Well, he made a clandestine visit uh, to Belfast, uh, to the Falls Road in July 1970. Uh, and Hillary would have been seen as a voice of moderation within Fianna Fáil at that time. There was a steeliness uh, to him, uh, nonetheless. Uh, and he was castigated by James Ch- Chichester Clark, who was the Northern Ireland Prime Minister at the time, and indeed by the British government, uh, for not making uh, the British government and the Northern Ireland government aware of his visit and it was regarded as inflammatory, uh, to which he responded, uh, you know, does it really have to be seen um, as embarrassing for, for me to visit uh, Northern Ireland? After all, unionists frequently travel to the Dublin Horse Show and we don't make any comment about that. So there was some kind of petty um, squabbling going on, you know, in, in, in relation to diplomacy. But of course, the stakes got higher and higher because the, the, the other context there, of course, is the amount of people who were being killed uh, in Northern Ireland. Um, and and also workers being expelled from Harland and Wolf, for example, over the summer of 1920. Uh, Bernadette Devlin was very much in the news because she had been sentenced to six months imprisonment for rioting in Derry the previous year. She appealed it, it was upheld. So, you know, all of that is swirling around. And there are some Irish politicians who are peeking over the border. Uh, and you could argue that this is the first real look some Southern Irish politicians have had over the border since the 1920s. Mm. And what did the British Home Secretary, Reginald Maudling, what did he have to say about Northern Ireland when he came to visit that Well, summer? he was the British Home Secretary, so he had responsibility for Northern Ireland. Uh, and he made his first visit in the summer of 1970. And on the way back, he said, for God's sake, bring me a large scotch. What a bloody awful country. Mm. Now, that tells you an awful lot. There's a willful ignorance there at the heart of the British establishment. Many of them are time warped in relation to how they view Ireland. They're stuck in a 1920s way of thinking about Ireland. Uh, and there's a very dismissive attitude, obviously, to that. Modelling was to become uh, a very important, a very controversial character in relation uh, uh, to Northern Ireland policy, obviously. But there's also Ted Heath, who is you know, the new British Prime Minister, who's been described as a slow learner uh, when it comes to Anglo-Irish relations. So how was the Irish government going to handle that 
challenge of trying to engage the British government and emphasise the need for an Irish dimension uh, to any possible solution. Mm. Um, so that in itself represents a significant uh, diplomatic and political challenge. Though the Department of External Affairs really got its act together quite quickly and started appointing key um, Irish civil servants uh, to liaise with Northern nationalists in uh, in particular and get a stronger sense of what was going on. And did the emergence of the SDLP then that summer, how did it manage to handle North-South relations? Well, with difficulty uh, because the party itself was was divided, you know. Uh, it's, it's quite revealing, I suppose, that John Hume, even though Jerry Fitt was the party leader, John Hume was seen by Dublin as the key man. Was he know? already? Yeah. I mean, Eamon Gallagher, who was the, you know, uh, official, the Irish government official appointed to act as a liaison between the, the, the Dublin government and Northern nationalists, he said explicitly at that time uh, that they saw John Hume as as the, the spokesperson for, for non-nationalists in Northern Ireland. Um, and Jerry Fitt was well aware, of course, that John Hume was developing a reputation um, both within Northern Ireland and outside of Northern Ireland. Uh, and he certainly resented that. Uh, but what they wanted to do, of course, was, was to get Dublin to be more uh, aggressive uh, in its approach to the British government, but also to start uh, the process whereby the Dublin, co- Dublin government could be persuaded of the merits of the SDLP uh, approach, which of course was constitutional and based on a rejection of violence uh, and on the idea of, of, of consent, uh, but also that there had to be an Irish dimension to the solution to this problem. It couldn't just be seen uh, as, as something that to be solved between Belfast and London. And mm. of course, you know, to, to get the British government on board, to get Ted Heath on board, uh, takes a couple of years at least. Um, what did the state papers, they were released in recent years, what do they tell us about John Hume uh, and how he was viewed in Dublin during that period? Well, there are very frank memoranda written uh, by Irish diplomats such as Eamon Gallagher who I mentioned or Sean Donlan uh, who are very attuned to what is going on within Northern Nationalism but they're also very attuned to the divisions within the SDLP and they frequently commented for example that the SDLP would arrive in Dublin uh, without an agreed line you know because they couldn't agree uh, amongst themselves Um, but also the degree of disillusionment that sets in at a relatively early stage in the early 1970s you know um, even when it comes to things like power sharing uh, or the idea of a Council of Ireland you know, because the SDLP uh, or some of them were making the argument that policing um, had to be something that would involve an Irish dimension, that it wouldn't just be about Belfast, it could be about Dublin. So an awful lot of those tensions and those difficulties um, are being reflected in these memoranda, in, in, in papers that have been re- released in recent times. And also the egos, you know, and there are, a lot of, uh, there are a lot of egos involved in this, but it's also a very emotive time. And let's not underestimate how high emotions were running in 1969, 1970, 1971, and all that's swirling around the violence, the attitude of Dublin, uh, the perceived willful ignorance of London. Um, Interment, of course, rears its head the following year. Emotions do run very high. And even Jerry Fitt himself was widely regarded as, as one of the individuals who had looked to Dublin for more than just political assistance, that they were seeking arms for defence purposes. They did feel that they were a community under siege. Uh, but you also then, of course, have John Hume and others, you know, trying to refashion the message of Irish nationalism. You know, mm. the way he had put it in the mid-1960s, like we've been prisoners of an image that has been built up over 40 
years, the traditional relentless focus on partition has to be replaced by actually digging down into the problems of Northern Ireland and engaging with those problems as bread and butter issues, you know, as, as well as trying to come up with some form uh, of, of a plan to tackle the big constitutional questions. Mm. Um, Derry then in, in August 1970 and the Labour Party's Conor Cruz O'Brien found himself at an Apprentice Boys rally. What, what happened there? Well, Conor Cruz O'Brien was a star recruit to the Labour Party in the late 1960s. You know, he was an intellectual powerhouse. He was a famed diplomat and the Labour Party regarded him as a big prize. And then he won a seat in 1969 and he was the party's spokesperson on Northern Ireland and foreign affairs. But he went up as an observer and he found himself at an Apprentice Boys um, parade in Derry in August 1970 and he got beaten up. Um, Now, he was quite wry about it. Um, He got beaten up because he didn't applaud the speaker. Um, But he said he had been contemplating uh, applauding the speaker but he felt that if he clapped, he would have been beaten up anyway. So he was glad he had not clapped. <laughs> but it, it was interesting. And, you know, the reason it, it's interesting to mention Conor Cruz O'Brien, because he went on to develop quite a controversial thesis uh, about the states of Ireland, as he put it in his 1972 book. He's on a learning curve because he would have had quite a nationalist ardour uh, as a younger man. And he's on a learning curve. And he concludes quite controversially that the territorial claim that the Republic has to Northern Ireland uh, is a colonial claim um, and that, it, you know, it's not in the interests... Uh, of the Catholic community and he suggests that nationalists in Ireland are being infatuated um, you know by the the, martyolo- the martyrology uh, and, and the myths um, so you know he develops quite a controversial thesis but it's interesting that he finds himself there uh, in the summer of 1970 because we, we need to remind ourselves it's not just Fianna Fáil that was struggling with framing an approach to Northern Ireland so was the Labour Party And the Labour Party, you know, witnessed an awful lot of infighting in relation to how they should approach Northern Ireland as well. So it did demonstrate the capacity in the summer of 1970. It did demonstrate the capacity of Northern Ireland to cause a lot of political instability uh, in the Republic. Um, But I suppose you could argue that it, it was confronted at a relatively early stage. And by 1971, the government is quite comfortable with the idea that they need to focus on the SDLP and develop those lines of communications into into something more concrete politically. Okay, well, it certainly was a turbulent year, the summer in particular of 1970. And as always, Jermyn Farisher, thank you for transporting us back in time. We'll be back after this. Today with Sarah McInerney on RTE Radio 1.